Please join with me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the plea and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you have never heard of John Newton, you have certainly sung some of his hymns. He wrote many well-known hymns. He wrote glorious things of thee are spoken. He wrote how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. He wrote let us love and sing and wonder. Or also come my soul thy suit prepare and approach my soul the mercy seat. But he is best known for writing amazing grace. John Newton was the captain of a slave trading ship, but he was converted in 1748, went into the ministry, and became one of the greatest opponents of slave trading that England had ever known. Because he became a Christian later in life, he would turn many of the passages of the Bible into hymns in order that he could learn them Uh, better for himself. And so he has hundreds of these hymns or these verses, poems if you will, that were never sung in church. He made one of these hymns out of our text this morning. And I thought it might be helpful and maybe a little fun to hear his hymn from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Since he lived during the 1700s, I need to define a couple of words before I recite the hymn. And by the way, I will recite it. I won't sing it. Uh, So don't worry. A husbandman is a farmer. A cruise is a clay pot or jar. And a cockatrice is a mythical figure that could kill you by simply looking at you. And this uh, cockatrice was hatched apparently from an egg, so the myth goes. It had a rooster's head, rooster's legs, a rooster's wings, but the body and tail of a snake. That being said, listen to John Newton's little hymn about Second Kings two nineteen through twenty two. Though Jericho pleasantly stood and looked like a promising soil, the harvest produced little food to answer the husbandman's toil. The water some property had, which poisonous proved to the ground, the springs were corrupted and bad, the stream spread a barrenness round. But soon by the crews and the salt, prepared by Elisha's command, the water was cured of his fault, and plenty enrich the land. An emblem sure, this of the grace, on fruitless dead sinners bestowed. For man is in Jericho's case, till cured by the mercy of God. How noble a creature he seems, what knowledge, invention, and skill. How large and extensive his schemes, how much can he do if he will. His zeal to be learned and wise, will yield no limits or bars. He measures the earth and the skies and numbers and marshals the stars. 
yet still He is barren of good. In vain are His talents and art, for sin has infected His blood and poisoned the streams of His heart. Though cockatrice eggs He can hatch, or spider-like webs can weave, tis madness to labor and watch for what will destroy or deceive. But grace, like salt in the cruise, when cast in the spring of the soul, a wonderful change will produce, diffusing new life through the whole. The wilderness blooms like a rose, the heart which was vile and abhorred, now fruitful and beautiful grows, the garden and joy of the Lord. My personal opinion is a great exposition of the passage, but I think there's a reason it never made it into the hymn books. <laughs> Newton's hymn, however, is very helpful because it reminds us that this is not just a miracle that happened in the past. Rather, as Newton points out, even though the miracle happened in the past, it continues to have present significance for us because it is a demonstration of God's mercy and grace. As we examine this passage, I hope to be able to illuminate for us four character traits of God, or attributes of God, and what that means for us. The four character traits of God will be the four points of this sermon. So first, we will see God's unchanging holiness. Next, we will see God's surprising mercy. Third, we will see God's transforming grace. And lastly, we'll see God's great faithfulness toward us. We see God's unchanging holiness in verse 19. So we read, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. The city that's being spoken of here is the city of Jericho. We are most familiar with Jericho because it was destroyed by God when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. They marched around Jericho several times, blew their horns, and the walls collapsed. After the walls of the city collapsed, God commanded the Israelites to devote the entire city to destruction. Every living thing was to be put to the sword. Every man, every woman, every child, even the animals. And everything left was then to be burned. This was called the Hakrim mandate you pronounce the Hebrew correctly, you'll normally spread your germs several, over uh, several feet. So, Ethan, you can be glad that I, my pronunciation was incorrect. <laughs> I heard over the past two weeks uh, that several of the children learnt, uh, enjoyed uh, how I learned the definition of, say, be quiet in Hebrew. Hasha, your mouth. So I thought it, I, I uh, would share how I learned the word harim. And um, my wife can tell you the story about this, but I learned my Hebrew from 1.30 in the morning till 4.15 in the morning every night. And so being in the middle of the night, uh, having to learn Hebrew, I made up little sayings to help me learn it. So... 
for the word harem. If you harem them, then you really kareem them. And it's lasted for over 30 years. So after the Israelites destroyed Jericho, Joshua gave a prophecy over Jericho. In Joshua 6.26, Jericho, um, Joshua said, well, or the Scripture reads, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and builds the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son, he shall set up his gates. These were very, very severe consequences for rebuilding Jericho. But now, in 2 Kings chapter 2, Jericho has been rebuilt. It continues to be inhabited to this day. Interestingly enough, our newest deacon, Lou Jolly, was just in Jericho a couple of weeks ago. Jericho was a very strategically located city. It was located on the plain on the east side of I'm sorry, on the western side of the Jordan River. If any enemy wanted to invade the promised land, then the plain of Jericho would be the most likely place that they would begin their invasion. So it would be advantageous for the Israelites to rebuild Jericho and use it as an outpost or as a fort to protect their land. And also the plain there that Jericho was built upon uh, has a very pleasant climate. If you go on to Google Earth and look down at the city of Jericho, you'll see uh, mountains to the west, the Jordan River to the east, and it's pretty um, dry all around it. But on the plain, it's nice and green. If you were to type in modern-day Jericho into your Google uh, search engine, the first thing you will see is it pops up. Modern-day Jericho is a popular tourist destination due to its pleasant climate, historical sites, and religious significance. Look at verse 19. They said, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant. It was pleasant back so many thousand of years ago. It continues to be pleasant to this day. So it's not surprising that it was rebuilt. God said that they were not to rebuild Jericho. But the people of Israel saw that if it was a strategic location with a pleasant climate. What should they do? Sounds a lot like Genesis 3. God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye. What did Adam and Eve do when faced with disobeying God or obeying God and eating this food that was pleasing to their eye? I want to speak to our young people for a couple of moments. I want our younger people, those who are older than our young children, to give me your special attention for a few moments. Give me your undivided attention. God has given you blessings stacked upon blessings. 
just by virtue of you being raised in this country with all its advantages and with loving parents, you are blessed beyond 99% of all the other young people living in the world right now. You can add on top of that our great community, our great climate here in Florida. I think it snowed over a foot up in New England yesterday or day before yesterday. And then the cherry on top is the privilege that you have to hear God's love about God's love for you in your home and in your church week in and week out. Young people, you are blessed. Adam and Eve were blessed in the garden. But in spite of that, you are going to be tempted to set your heart on something that God has said that you may not have or may not do. It will likely be something that is not off limits to many other people your age. You will also be tempted by the lifestyles you see on television or in the movies. And then you will see advertising and hear advertising that will have the goal of making you want that which God has forbidden, make you want it all the more. And this desire to have this or to do this, as it grows in your heart, all of God's blessings to you and everything you know to be holy and true, as this desire grows, God's blessings and all that you know to be holy and true begins to shrink in proportion to how much you desire that which God has said that you may not have or you may not do. In fact, the desire can grow so great in your heart that everything and everyone who attempts to stand between you and your desires, you might even grow to resent. And you will be tempted to think happiness is unattainable unless you have this one thing or are allowed to do this one thing. I was a teenager once myself. I want to tell you, as a former young person myself, and as a parent of four young people, and as a minister of the Gospel, this pursuit of these desires will end up in sadness. It is common to us all, speaking to the young people, but I'm sure I'm speaking to a lot of older people as well. Yesterday, I drove up to Starbucks and because it was a beautiful day, there were many people sitting out at the tables. And I noticed a guy in his late 20s or early 30s and he was studying a book and writing in a notebook. I love finding out what people are reading. If you're carrying a book around, you may not have seen my eyes look down and find out what book you're reading, but I've done it because I love knowing what people are reading. I just have that interest. And so I was I saw this guy intently studying this book, and it was about the same size as maybe a Bible. And I saw I was hoping he was reading the Bible, but he wasn't. He was reading an alcoholic anonymous. 
a, a book on Alcoholic Anonymous. And in that one moment, I saw that guy's whole life. It was evident that he was studying that book on Alcoholics Anonymous very personally. He had to drink an awful lot to get to that spot in his life at such a young age that he was sitting there at that table reading that book. And I'm sure that he had to sneak around his parents and he had to disregard a lot of advice from a lot of friends to get to that spot at such an early age. And for the next 50 years, I would imagine, of his life, he's going to have the consequence of that temptation hanging over him. Very likely, the choices he made while he was young will profoundly direct his future in very unhealthy ways. There are consequences to our choices. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he or she will also reap. For the one who sows to to his own flesh, from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. God is holy. God had commanded the Israelites not to rebuild Jericho. And He laid out the consequences for rebuilding Jericho in order to help them obey His commandment. So we read about the rebuilding of Jericho in 1 Kings 16 verses Uh, Verse 34. And what had happened was the area was just too pleasing, too pleasantly situated. And they disregarded God. So in 1 Kings 16, verse 34, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abraham his firstborn, and set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, uh, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, son of Nun. The consequences of disobeying the Lord were very dire for Hiel and his two sons. But when we have our hearts set on something, what we do is we analyze our desires against the possible consequences. And when that desire is so great, our hearts usually win. Our desires usually win. Hiel and the people of Israel were so intent on rebuilding Jericho that they pressed on even after Hiel's two sons had been killed in the rebuilding of the city. So God gave other incentives to help the Israelites obey His commandments. He made the water to be undrinkable and the land to be unproductive for growing produce. So again, verse 19, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, 
but the water is bad. The, the Hebrew word for, for bad here is the word ra, which is also the word for evil. This is really bad water. This is deadly water. And so he says that the, the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. They were having to transport fresh water nearly two miles from the Jordan River to be able to live in the city of Jericho. It's amazing the heartache we are willing to endure or the heartache that we are willing to cause to others in order to follow our own desires and disobedience to God. Sin brings sadness. The sadness might come later, but it always comes. You cannot override God. You can manipulate your circumstances. You can connive against others. You can even rationalize away the immorality. But when you disregard God in favor of your own desires, the consequences are sure to follow whether sooner or later. If you find yourself out of sorts and in a bad situation because you are not obeying God, I want to give you some hope. I want to help you cast your eyes heavenward to God. Because the Bible makes it clear that God does not delight in measuring out the consequences. The consequences are there to drive you back to Himself. So don't kick against the goads. Don't kick against the consequences, but rather turn back to God if you find yourself estranged from Him. The consequences are there to drive you back to Him. The whole message of the Bible is that God delights to be merciful to sinners. Micah chapter 7 um, ask this question, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God delights to be merciful. God is so merciful that He often often surprises us with His desire to show mercy. I'll never forget the time that uh, I met this woman who was addicted to cocaine among many other drugs. And we began talking about God. And I began explaining the gospel of grace. And as I was doing that, she suddenly interrupted me. And she said, You're not telling me about the get you God. Said, what is to get you, God? And she said, God is always angry with her and would not love her because of her addiction to drugs. And she was surprised to learn about God's mercy. She said, every time she went into a church and people found out that she was drug addicted, they started preaching at her about how she was going into hell. And so she had this view of God being the get you God, and he just had his hand raised, ready to to bring it down upon her. She knew nothing of God's love or his mercy. After that conversation, she became a Christian. 
And I received a letter from her two or three years later. And she told me everything that God had done in her life as a result of that conversation, as a result of her uh, coming to know the God of mercy. And she told me about how her relationship with her parents was restored, how she had regained custody of her children, how she had a, a, a good job. She'd never heard about the God of mercy. When I went to Uganda, not last year, but 25 years ago, our group came upon a group of people sitting outside their mud hut and they were drinking some kind of alcoholic drink from an, from an old gourd that they had, uh, had hollowed out and it looked like they were drinking muddy water. This must have been some kind of homebrew concoction. And I will never forget the older lady that was sitting right in front of me down on the ground and she appeared to have much have drunk much more of that that uh, alcoholic concoction than anybody else. She kept belching out loud, and and uh, but I kept explaining the gospel, pressing forward the gospel to these people that were sitting there. And she interrupted me, and she said, "How can you, um, or rather, how can God forgive me when I'm getting right, getting drunk right in front of you while you're reading the Bible to me?" And I told her, we don't need to get cleaned up in order to take a bath. Rather, we go go to God with all our sins and He cleans us up. God delights to show mercy to sinners. The Pharisees in Matthew 9 were taught a lesson about God's delight to show mercy. The Pharisees said to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So when the people of Jericho mention their plight to Elisha, this place is very well situated, but the water's bad. The land is unproductive. I think most people would expect Elisha to respond by saying something like, well, don't you remember God's commandment? How He told them not to rebuild the city of Jericho? That if they would rebuild the city of Jericho, the person responsible for rebuilding it would do it at the cost of his firstborn and his youngestborn. You're not supposed to be living here. Get out. That's the way we might think that Elisha would have responded. Instead, look at how he responds in verses 20 and 21. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. The curse upon Jericho is a picture of our own human condition outside of Christ. Everyone who does not belong to Christ is under God's curse. If you are outside of Christ, you are under God's curse. But God, because of His great mercy, shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Christ became a curse for us so that in Him we might become the children of God. When God shows His mercy in Christ, He does not just forgive us and then let us go our own way. He transforms us. He changes us. And I forgot to say, point out also, in verses 20 and 21, Elisha doesn't hesitate. He doesn't respond, well, God was... Why didn't you listen to the commandment? Rather, he goes and he reverses the curse by throwing the salt out there. And when when God shows us His mercy in Christ, He doesn't just forgive us and send us on our way back to our old lifestyle. He transforms us. He changes us. God did not remove the, the curse uh, I'm sorry, God did not just remove the curse from Jericho. He also healed the water and made the land to be productive. When you come to Christ, He makes you into a new creation. He gives you a new heart that has new loves. He gives you, or rather, He renews your will that has new desires. He gives you a whole new way of life. Just like He changed not only the water, but made the whole land productive, removed the curse. So that's what He has done for you in Christ. And when I became a Christian, I was away at college. And when I came home, my life had so changed that my mother asked me if I had joined a cult. Now, I had become a Christian. I became a Christian before both of my parents did. They became Christians later. So my I said to my mom, no, mom, I've not joined a cult, but I've been learning a lot of Presbyterian theology. (laughs) When God saves us from our sins, He also transforms us. He does something for us. He forgives us of our sins. He does something in us. He changes us, gives us a new nature in Christ. Have you been transformed? Do you have a new nature in Christ? And when God saves us, He will not let us go. God is infinitely faithful to us. He is incomparably more faithful to us than we are to Him. And this is hinted at in our passage. Elisha threw salt out upon the bitter waters, and the waters were healed. Again, um, verse uh, 21. Then he went out to the spring of water, threw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. Salt is a preservative. And so in the Bible, salt became a metaphor for God's faithfulness. The salt did not heal the waters in Jericho. It was simply a symbol pointing to God's faithfulness. The writer of Second Kings, who lived nearly 200 years after Elisha, gave us this confirmation in verse 22. Uh, so the writer makes this note, So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Just like God is faithful in bringing dire consequences for disobedience, He is also faithful 
in keeping all of His great and precious promises toward His children. He will never leave you or forsake you if you belong to Him. Nothing under heaven or earth can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, to conclude, don't give in to the desires that are always pulling at you. Those desires are called the flesh in Romans chapter 7. They wage war against your soul. God's consequences are there to keep you from going off the deep end. God's consequences are there to keep our society from going off the deep end and chasing these desires of the flesh. But God loves us so much that He sent His Son to bear the eternal consequences for your sins. Your temporal consequences, they're light in comparison with the eternal consequences of sinning against the Holy God. In Christ, the curse has been removed. In Christ, the curse has been reversed. That's the whole message of this passage. And so trust Him for His love. Trust Him for His mercy. Trust Him for His faithfulness. Trust Him to help you overcome your sinful desires. Trust Him. He will not let you down. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we look to You this morning. Father, I ask for any who are here who are being pulled and tugged away from You. But Lord, in praying that, I am praying for every one of us because we all have those struggles. Lord, we are all tempted to take our eyes off of Christ and to set our hearts and our desires on something that You say is unholy and unhealthy for our souls. Help us to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we feel like we cannot even hold on to Him, by Your Spirit, help us to cling even more powerfully, knowing that You will keep us, that You will never, ever let us out of Your grip because You love us so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.